The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, some ideas on how America can better deter Russia in cyberspace in the wake of the meeting between President Biden and his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. But first, joining us to talk about how to think and plan for an ethical artificial intelligence future is Dr. Amanda Muller. She is a senior staff artificial intelligence systems engineer and technical fellow at Northrop Grumman's Networked Information Solutions Unit. Amanda, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our coverage of naval warfare. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Uh, Amanda, folks have been talking about the importance of artificial intelligence, especially ethical AI, for, for a long time. And our adversaries have been moving fast to build uh, what are broadly considered to be very, very important enabling uh, capabilities. Autonomy, for example, needs uh, learning machines that are powered by good data, but also ethical artificial intelligence or unethical, depending on how you want to use, use them. Uh, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence was seen as a watershed document. It was chaired uh, by former Google uh, chairman, Dr. Eric Schmidt, uh, as well as former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, uh, two men who've spent an enormous amount of time thinking about uh, the, the field. How is the report shaping your AI uh, thinking at work there at Northrop Grumman? I think it underscores the importance of secure and ethical AI in everything that we do. This is something that we were already thinking about. And the NSC AI report that came out just a few months ago has accelerated our efforts. So we are very encouraged to see the government putting a, a strong emphasis on AI ethics and responsible AI. And we are excited to help meet that challenge. Um, we're um, going to talk uh, in, a, in a second about where it is we should go because the pieces of this are, are sort of coming together uh, in, in terms of a data or um, you know, DOD ethics uh, standards. But we repeatedly talk about the, on this program about a need for ethical AI and trust in AI-enabled uh, systems. Briefly recap for the audience what that really means. Explain to us also the new concept of justified confidence, how that plays into um, how we need to think about this space and why it's so important as well. The National Security Commission on AI report had an entire chapter on justified confidence, which just shows how important this concept is. And justified confidence to us means it, it, developing AI systems that are robust, that act as we expect them to, that are reliable, that are accountable to our, our laws, our democratic values, and our AI ethics principles, and then making sure that we can verify and validate all of that. So the, the NSC AI report have highlighted this emerging consensus that, that you mentioned on making sure that we use AI ethically and responsibly. And this is particularly important within national defense applications. And I wanna pull a direct quote from that report because I think it highlights this principle very well. The report said, if AI systems do not work as designed or if they're unpredictable, that leaders will not adopt them, 
operators will not use them, Congress will not fund them, and the American people will not support them. So that quote just highlights what happens when we don't trust our systems. They, they don't get used and we cannot leverage the benefits of this technology if we don't use it. So trust is critical to make sure that we can leverage the benefits of the technology. On, on the flip side though, if trust is too high, that can lead to misuse. Um, it, it can lead us to use the systems in ways they weren't intended and it can lead to overconfidence. So justified confidence means developing systems that have the right balance of trust. And we do that by enabling humans to understand how the AI is working and giving them insight and traceability. Um, and that lets them have confidence that the AI enabled decisions are the right decisions and that lets them act accordingly. So that's what justified confidence means. It's that balance of trust and ensuring that the systems are operating as intended. Um, you you raised something which which actually becomes kind of an expert conversation, but you ch touched on it. Talk to us about a circumstance where trust is too high, right? Because I think that that's somebody something that people don't think about, and it's actually in some respects as bad as not having enough trust. I, absolutely. So in our in our AI systems, we need to make sure that they have specific use cases in which they're operating. And the data that feeds into those use cases is validated, that it's free from bias, that it's appropriate to the situation that we're using it in. If we overtrust an AI system and, and we say, hey, this is working great in this one particular situation, let's use it in another situation for which it hasn't been tested, it hasn't been validated, and then it can potentially underperform in that situation. So if we overtrust, then we run the potential to use AI systems in ways in which they weren't intended and haven't been validated. And then we, we lose the performance and the capability. That's one example, um, but it, it kind of highlights that overtrust is just as damaging and just as important to mitigate as undertrust is. As we heard a little bit earlier this week, and I think it was uh, Bill Moran who may have mentioned it, right? The, the AI is very specific. It's not like give me an AI with a side of fries. It is tailored to exactly whatever application, right, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So there is this temptation to sort of say like, oh, well, it works well here. Well, it, it may seem to work well in another application that actually it, it, it may not be uh, as, as, as good at. W let me ask you about, we, we don't really have a good national approach to AI yet. We, we, it's nascent. We're taking steps in that direction. The last administration put forward uh, DOD uh, standards on artificial intelligence uh, ethics. Uh, Dr. Cathix, uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary, has issued a vision for data, right, which is absolutely critical. It's at the core of everything uh, that, that we do, again, as we heard from Bill Moran uh, on Monday. Where, where do we need to be in terms of sort of the confluence of policy, technology, and governance? Because the technology is moving really fast. But the policy and the governance bits of it, we, we tend to do more talking about than actually actualizing a change, right? What, what is the sort of strategy and approach that we need to bring all of this stuff together and do it in, in the right way from square one, as opposed to trying to figure it out after? I, I think you're absolutely right, that it's incredibly important that we bring together not just the technology, but also the strategy and the governance around that technology. And, and that's an approach that we are taking. Uh, we have a secure and ethical AI working group that's bringing together representatives from our legal and compliance departments, our contracts, our technology, and our business developments to ensure that we can you know, bring best practices in and take an, an entire systems approach to how 
we develop um, secure and ethical AI uh, applications. And one of the things that I think the current administration is doing that's really positive is this new National AI Research Resource Task Force. Um, they are bringing together industry, academia, and government to look not just at technology development, but also at AI workforce development and AI ethics. So it, it really is an all hands on deck type of approach to ensure that we are developing AI technology that's being used for the good of our nation and for the good of national security. Um, so I, I think it's extremely important that we look at all facets, not just the technology, but also the strategy, the policy and the governance. You've mentioned the responsible, the equitable, traceable, reliable, governable are all key elements of this. Uh, but then there's the cultural training piece of this uh, as well, right? I mean, oftentimes we find that you can have very, very secure hardware, great software, and it's always the human element that sort of lets let, let's, let's the game, game down, right? You open an email and you should not have opened. You clicked on a link you should not have opened. You plugged in a thumb drive you shouldn't have plugged in. Uh, to, to, to your hardware, and we find that to be a pervasive challenge across the piece. How far away are we from being able to get to that better integrated future? Do, do you think it's a, it's a, it's a two-year thing, a five-year thing, a 10-year thing? Because we're in a highly competitive environment. Folks on, on your team may be better than some other places in industry and government, et cetera, right? I mean, how, how far away are we from getting to a better concerted vision that we're executing somewhat more uniformly across across the piece? I, I think putting an emphasis on workforce development is, is important. And I, I don't only mean the workforce that's developing the AI technology. I also mean the workforce that will be using the technology and, and operating it. So that is something that was very clearly laid out in the NSCAI report. It's also part of that National AI Research Resource Task Force is looking at developing the workforce within the DOD to, to operate AI technologies. A few efforts that we are using within Northrop Grumman, um, I, I mentioned technology development. We have uh, an AI advanced program that's focused on building technology, but we also have programs focused on building AI awareness and skills around understanding what AI is and what it does, not only for our technologists, but for all of our employees to help with that. So I think that you know, similar efforts are going on around industry and within government, and that's exactly what we need to keep doing to build that awareness around what AI is what it does, what it should do, and what it shouldn't do. And I think that will help us to, to be able to execute this technology securely, ethically, and responsibly. Do you have a sense, as somebody who's been doing this for a while, I mean, is this, is this a five-year effort, a 10-year effort, or is there actually, once you start it, there's really no end, right? It's, it's sort of a, a, a spiral. But I, I get a sense, folks are working the pieces, but when you're going to be able to see all of these pieces start coming together, I guess, is my question. Right. What, what kind of time horizon do we need to bear in mind, do you think, as somebody who looks at this space daily? I think it's going to be continuous because AI is rapidly growing and changing. And so we will all need to continue to learn um, and, and grow with the technology. Uh, it's you know kind of similar to, to cyber. Cyber is always growing and changing. There are, are new threats coming all the time. AI is similar. It's always growing and changing. And there are new um, new threats, new policies, uh, new things that AI can do that we all need to continue to stay on top of. So I think it's going to be a continuous effort. Um, let me take you 
to the question of um, ethics. Um, you know, we have said that we will not, as, as you mentioned, the commission's report makes that clear. Uh, but our adversaries uh, or potential adversaries have very different standards, right? China and Russia have very different views on individual and, and human rights, uh, for, for example. Can we design AI, ethical AI systems on our behalf that help us identify other non-ethical AI systems? And, and how do we operate in a universe where not everybody is abiding by the same standards? Our adversaries not playing by the same rules is not unique to artificial intelligence. It exists within all facets of national security. So I, I see the ethical principles as a way for us to develop AI in accordance with the laws of armed conflict, with our democratic values, and in accordance with ways that our DOD can operate. And that's true for all technology, not just for AI, that we obey our own rules and laws. Um, so I, I think the ethical principles can allow us to develop AI that can counteract our adversaries, no matter what rules they are playing by. So I, I really don't see that as a hindrance, but as a benefit that allows us to develop technology in a way that we can support. We've heard on this on this series from Admiral uh, Mike Rogers, um, you know, Chris Inglis, uh, Jim Lewis, although Jim thinks we're a little bit closer to global standards, right? And we've been talking really in cyberspace, the rules uh, required and, and sort of common global uh, standards uh, to sort of deal with the sort of Wild West element of this, uh, right? Do you think, Amanda, it's possible to set a global AI standard. There are some folks who are saying, look, we, we need to have sort of global agreements and global understandings uh, a little bit as we do in nuclear and in other, in other fields uh, to sort of, you know, ensure the common good. Do you, do you think that that would be something that's possible and doable? Or as so many other things in national security, some may go along with it and others simply won't, as, as, you, as you mentioned, right? Not everybody looks at everything the same way. Some people will bomb a hospital and others will try very hard not to. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert in foreign policy, um, but I will say that I think we have the right people making these decisions. The Jake has been put in, that's the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, has been put in charge of the Department of Defense's responsible AI efforts. They have been leading the charge in developing our ethical principles, developing policy guidance around AI ethics. And that's exciting for us to see as an industry. It, it allows us to, to know what we are working towards to move faster to meet our customers' needs and expectations. I fully expect that they will continue to look at this from a global perspective, and uh, we will be excited to, to help them along those goals, whatever form they take. Each administration is building on what the last administration did. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the task force. Where, where do you think this administration is, is going? Um, and what is the input you guys are putting into their policy development, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, all of this is about a, a, a virtuous government industry partnership, right? The capabilities exist, not just in the government, the oversight exists there, but you can't do it without industry. Where, where do you think this administration is going to be taking, um, you know, and shaping this field to get us to a better place ultimately? 
Uh, I see them working very hard to bring together uh, all the best minds from industry, academia, and government. And that's actually going on right now as we speak. The, the Jake is hosting a conference with presenters from industry, academia, and government, including some of our partners like Carnegie Mellon University um, that are speaking. And I, I think that that's a fantastic opportunity for us to learn from all of the great work that's going on, not just in the government, not just in industry, but in academia as well. So I, I really do see the government working to bring all of those, those great minds together and bring the best ideas forward. And I fully expect that to continue. And uh, we, we are doing the same thing at Northrop Grumman. We're currently working with a Silicon Valley startup, Credo AI. They're sharing their governance processes with us. We're working closely with Carnegie Mellon on uh, secure and ethical AI best practices and projects. We're partnering with North Carolina State University on an apprenticeship program. So um, we're reflecting that government desire to, to work with industry and academia. And I'm excited to see that happening. I think that's for the benefit of the nation and our national security. Amanda, absolute pleasure having you on. Enjoyed the conversation very much and look forward to keeping in touch uh, because I think that at the end of the day, um, this capability is, is going to be a national uh, discriminator and, and sort of the better we sort of forge a national strategy because it's going to touch every aspect of our lives, uh, the better and look forward to having you on as part of a continuing series on this. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now is Justin Sherman with the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. He is also a contributor with Wired and one of the folks who joins us on a regular basis to talk about all things cyber. Justin, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolute uh, pleasure, and I should commend to the audience two very interesting pieces you wrote. One uh, with uh, Slate that you wrote before uh, the summit between President Biden uh, and uh, his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, and another one in Wired about what we should do that you wrote after uh, the, the summit. Um, let me start off in the lead up uh, to, to, the, to the summit, and one of the reasons why you wrote the, the insightful Slate piece was the sheer amount of Russian misbehavior before we got to the summit, right, which, which is very Russian. Biden even warned Putin uh, against uh, not causing trouble at it. And what did we see? Uh, but uh, uh, Putin cracked down on the Russian opposition, agreed to sell a spy satellite to the Iranians uh, and, and some other. And, and obviously the colonial pipeline had happened and uh, solar winds last year. What, are, what were some of the preceding factors that, that you found so worrying, especially in cyberspace? Uh, before those two men uh, actually met. Yeah, you mentioned several. Uh, I think first, right, we should just note generally outside of cyberspace, uh, the range of things that happened as well. You mentioned the satellites. We had the botched FSB attempt to assassinate Alexei Navalny. We had the jailing of Alexei Navalny, the protests against it, the crackdown on the protesters, um, and all kinds of other things going on. We also in March had Biden call Putin a killer, uh, accurately so, of course. Um, and so there were all of, of those broader political events that had happened. And then in cyberspace, there were a range of activities that the Russian government uh, had conducted and that the U.S. in part responded to. We had on April 15th, the White House sanctioning a number of Russian entities for previous election interference uh, this included the Treasury Department, which is quite interesting if listeners uh, want to go find the release, publicly naming and identifying 
uh, a number of Russian technology companies that they say are fronts for FSB or GRU disinformation. Uh, we, of course, had, as you mentioned, the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline. We also had a hack of JBS, which is a large meat processing uh, company. So there are a range of sort of activities that were going on. You had the throttling of Twitter within Russia, uh, and you had... Uh, as a result, a great amount of focus and priority within the Biden White House on making cybersecurity a key discussion point with Vladimir Putin. Um, and what, from your standpoint, were the key takeaways uh, from that meeting, right? It, it didn't go on as long as people expected. Um, there were some people who were dissatisfied. There were others who said, um, you know, that Joe Biden was the adult in the room and Sort of Putin got the message the United States is able to organize its allies and partners. Um, what, what did you see as the, the most important takeaways from that meeting? I think we have to remember first where we're coming from. So, right, we just had uh, the Trump administration come to a close, and I don't even think you could call uh, it engagement with Russia, I would call it their interaction with Russia, engagement would imply too much diplomacy, um, right? We had the president praising Putin, siding with him on election interference over our own intel agencies, um, all kinds of disastrous uh, things in the relationship. So I think it's just worth explicitly recognizing up front the importance uh, of this summit in and of itself. We have an administration that is taking the time to go over, to meet with Putin face-to-face, -to, -face, to engage in actual diplomacy, and to take that time to have conversations um, about these big issues as opposed to sort of the political theater that happened uh, in the last administration. So uh, the meeting was a couple hours long. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's realistic to expect that out of that Putin and Biden are going to come out waving some signed cyber treaty. I think that's, you know, that's sort of an absurd expectation. But uh, but what did happen is Biden said he raised uh, cybersecurity issues with Putin. And there are really two core parts to that. The first is that Biden said he named 16 sectors, which he did not specify to the public, uh, that the U.S. wants to see off limits for cyber attacks. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that Biden and Putin both said uh, that they have agreed to engage in future lower level cybersecurity dialogues. Um, and this is significant because this was something that happened a lot under the Obama administration. There was a lot of engagement between uh, defense and diplomatic organizations to talk about red lines in cyberspace. That was something that diminished under the Trump administration. So um, that was the second big achievement, I think, out of the summit, and it's a good thing that we're, you know, re-engaging in that conversation with the Russians. Um, let me take you uh, to uh, your Wired piece, um, which was what now, right? Uh, the concern is that the Russians uh, nor the Chinese are particularly deterrable, right? And and obviously, if we think about the context of North Korea, uh, right? The, and obviously, the North Koreans have the Chinese backing, right? So, I mean, that's that's a slightly different dynamic. What does the administration and uh, Washington's allies have to do to make sure that we do deter Russia and change its its course of behavior? Or, or for that matter, the Chinese, right? This summit was as much aimed at Beijing as it was at Moscow. 
So I think I'll, I'll, I'll answer that in two parts. So first is on uh, the issue of sort of cyber attacks and red lines that Biden mentioned following the meeting with Putin. There are a range of cyber activities occurring from within Russia that have a range of state involvement. So you have everything from cybercrime groups that the state uh, outright ignores because they hack targets outside Russia. They don't undermine the government. Authorities don't really care all the way to, uh, you know, military organizations or very sophisticated non-state actors that receive state backing or actively recruited by the security services in Russia. So um, that sits in an ecosystem in which the Kremlin also has a broad range of tools to coerce tech companies in Russia. And the Treasury Department highlighted this recently by pointing out some of those that serve as disinformation front groups. Um, and I have a report actually coming out in a couple of weeks that talks about that interplay. But I'll just say the first big thing the U.S. has to do is be really specific and narrow in articulating red lines. Because if we're going to go in and say, you need to stop any cyber attacks coming from, from within Russia, from any group targeting you know, 15 different sectors in the US, maybe including the DIB, that's just, a, that's just not a realistic, uh, that's far too broad uh, of a, a scope to go in with where you are actually able to legitimately expect the Russians to not want to do that or to be able to meet um, some sort of norm. So that's the first thing I would say is being specific about the type of uh, incidents and the actors behind the incidents that we want to be curtailed. Um, but the second main thing, and this was really the focus of the Wired piece, uh, is the fact that even if Biden says he signaled to Putin that there will be costs for continued election interference, the costs remain extremely low. And as a result, it's still incredibly rewarding. There's a high uh, return on the investment there for the Russians to keep interfering in U.S. elections. It cost uh, only a handful of a million dollars to run the Internet Research Agency in 2016. There was maybe 40, 50 million spent on Facebook ads that reached half of America uh, compared to hundreds of millions of dollars that U.S. candidates were spending. Um, and what have we done in response? We've done some sanctions. Uh, and things of this nature, but it hasn't really made it more difficult to conduct these campaigns. The tech platforms are still very vulnerable. They have the same business models. Um, and Putin is still of the view that we're in an information conflict. He still sees a lot of legitimate reporting and U.S. Uh, social media activity as part of some sort of U.S. disinformation uh, war. And so the notion that simply saying to Putin, we're going to impose the same costs we've been imposing is going to change the calculus, I think is is just not uh, realistic. And and how do we need to think about uh, that uh, deterrence of, of mis and disinformation? You know, we heard from Jim Clapper uh, yesterday on our uh, Andy Marshall strategy series talking about how, uh, you know, some clearinghouse uh, for um, um, open source intelligence could be useful uh, in that. From, from your standpoint, what are some ways of countering that? Because obviously the Atlantic Council has uh, a lab that, that focuses on this challenge as well. Yes, the DFR lab um, does really great work tracking this. And they've done also, I'd say, during COVID, some really interesting uh, analyses as well, tracking 
Um, what the Kremlin did, yeah, I, I think right it, when we're talking about deterrence, we have to talk. We have to recognize whether we're talking about um, you know denying the Russians the ability uh, to do something versus punishing the Russians for doing something, right? Because deterrence by punishment is distinct from deterrence um, by denial. And so I think on the punishment front, again, we've been trying this. We've been sanctioning. We've been uh, well, we haven't been saying don't do this because Trump uh, denied it happened. But, you know, now we were saying don't do this. You shouldn't interfere in elections. Um, uh, and so that is something that the administration uh, is continuing to do. We're also we're, uh, that's not really working too well. I would also say the deterrence by denial is not great either, because, as mentioned, it's still pretty easy to run these campaigns on social media platforms. And we've still seen how hack and leak operations and other kinds of cyber activities still get covered in the US press. They'll still get airtime on US cable networks. So until we're making it uh, much more difficult for those campaigns to actually be executed, we're not gonna really stop the Russians from interfering going forward. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on. Look forward to having you back on uh, when your report is out and you're ready to discuss it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman, and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.